Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben Moss Backrack. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. It is Wednesday, May 17th. Fast 10, the new Fast and Furious movie where Vin Diesel very realistically drives down the side of the Hoover Dam and into an explosion of rushing water is set for release this weekend all over the world, including China. The pre-release tracking is especially unreliable there, but it has fast opening to about 50 to $70 million, which would be by far the biggest opening of the year in China. By comparison, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 opened last weekend in China to just $28 million, and that was actually considered okay. So good for Vin Diesel, but the previous Fast movie opened to $136 million in China in May 2021, about double those current projections, and that was during more of the height of the pandemic. The truth is that while the Chinese government is back to letting Hollywood movies play in the country after a quasi-shadow ban for a few years, the movies that get in just aren't doing the same business as they once did. I hear this all the time from studio executives. They now pencil in a zero for China and then hope they get something out of that market. That's a huge change for the film business, and it impacts what kind of movies are greenlit and how much the studios can spend on them. The China box office was down about 35% last year compared to pre-pandemic, just like the U.S. market. But more importantly, the top-grossing movies in China weren't American. 85% of the grosses came from Chinese-made films. A sequel called The Battle at Lake Shangjin 2 grossed more than $600 million there, far more than the biggest U.S. movies like Avatar 2 and Jurassic World Dominion. So what's going on here? Today, we've got Eric Schwartzel, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal who covers this stuff and wrote a book last year about Hollywood and China. There's a lot going on in the China front, the whole TikTok debate, the government battle over censorship in China and the self-censorship by the U.S. studios desperate for that Chinese cash, and the summer box office, what Hollywood is supposed to do about China these days. No one really knows. So we're going to get into that with Eric Schwartzel. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Eric Schwartzel. He's a reporter at the Wall Street Journal and the author of Red Carpet, which is a fascinating book on Hollywood and China that came out last year. We're happy to have him back. Welcome. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. All right, so I wanted to have you back on the show because a lot has happened in the past year with respect to China and Hollywood, specifically with movies and how the Chinese government is looking at Hollywood releases. So give us the lay of the land real quick. Like movies are getting into China more than perhaps ever, yet the results are not as Hollywood would hope. Exactly. I mean, more movies than ever are getting into China, but once they are there, 
they're not selling many tickets. And why is that? It looks pretty dire. I think I think what's happened is, you know, the Chinese box office is recovering from COVID. And it seems like a lot of Chinese moviegoers decided during COVID that when they went back to the theaters, they weren't necessarily going to go see American movies if they didn't have to. I mean, before COVID shut down theaters, we started to see this trend where Chinese audiences were really starting to show a stronger preference for Chinese movies. And that makes sense, right? I mean, if you have a good Chinese option to see versus a mediocre American option, you're probably going to go see the movie with stars you recognize, with a story you recognize, with a director you know, that kind of thing. As you wrote in the book, that was the whole point of engaging with Hollywood for a decade and a half was to learn how they did it. How do you make a $200 million blockbuster? How do you put together the effects and the score and the actors and build stars? And the entire infrastructure of the movie-making business was sort of foreign to this country that had been cut off, essentially, from the rest of the world and opened up. And it feels like, with the nudging of the government there, that they learned how to do it. They now can put up their own blockbusters opposite the Hollywood stuff and they don't need the Hollywood movies. So why are they letting these movies in if they no longer need them? Well, I think they're letting them in in part because they are supposed to. Remember, there's a quota agreement that says that the Chinese government has to admit at least 34 U.S. or or let's say foreign films into the country every year. Didn't Joe Biden negotiated that when he was VP? Yeah, in 2012 at a, at a Lakers game whenever Xi Jinping was visiting as kind of China's heir apparent. Now, we've seen, though, the Chinese government has indicated in the past they don't care about this quota agreement if they don't want to. Right. Like there have been years that have come and gone where they haven't hit that number um, and everyone's just kind of had to let it go. But it seems like since the theaters have reopened, they're saying, OK, we're going to start letting these movies in, which is good news from for Hollywood. But what's troubling is that everything from these like monster hits like Super Mario Brothers are not are not performing as you would expect to even movies like Dungeons and Dragons, which I think five or six years ago we would have said would be saved by China. It was exactly the kind of two hundred million dollar special effects movie that Chinese audiences wanted to go see because their own directors weren't able to make them. Well, Paramount claimed it cost less. Let's give them that credit. But but okay, you, I see what enough, you're saying. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that gets to the, the point of why this matters. Because the decision-making process in Burbank or in Hollywood comes down to those China numbers often. And there was a real freak out when the movies were not getting in. It's like, oh, we've premised our entire model. We can pay Vin Diesel $30 million to do a fast movie because we know we're going to do two to $300 million in China. And ultimately we're going to get over a billion because of the quota and these movies getting in and that audience being there and wanting to see Vin Diesel, you know, go nuts in fast seven or fast eight. So this is trickling down to the studio suites where there's just chaos and uncertainty with respect to China. And if these movies are getting in and not doing any business there. It's going to affect the movies that get made. Oh, yeah. And I think right now what I'm hearing is that at studios like Universal, basically when they're greenlighting movies, they, they've traditionally had three columns of projected grosses. They've had, you know, North America, International and China. China's been its own kind of own kind of segment. 
And in the China column, they just put zero. So they don't account for any revenue coming out of the country. Poor Vin Diesel. Poor Vin Diesel. I'm sure Vin, Vin Diesel will not get to buy another ivory back scratcher. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, if, if you can treat it like found money, it makes a little bit more business sense, right? Like, oh, wow, anything we get out of China is gravy as long as we're not budgeting these movies expecting a $150 million or $200 million gross. That, it seems like, is, is, is what's making the most sense. I mean, it's, it's interesting you bring up Fast 10 because I think Fast 10 is going to be a pretty big indicator of where the Chinese market is right now because we've seen that they don't seem to care about superhero movies as they once did. They don't care about animated movies as they once did. So it'll be interesting to see if they care about basically this kind of, this kind of big American movie star-driven franchise, right? I mean, I, I mean if, if Fast 10 doesn't turn out moviegoers in China, I think we're really looking at a future where like, it's going to be like the avatars of the world. And that's about it. Yeah. Avatar did okay there. Considering that they were having oh, a, COVID, yeah, yeah, yeah. a COVID lockdown uh, around that time. They love James Cameron. He's their guy. I mean, a lot of Chinese moviegoers, like their first movie in theaters was Titanic. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the censorship front because there's been some activity in Washington, mostly related, I think, to the spinoffs of the TikTok stuff. Uh, the fact that the government is so uh, interested in what the Chinese government is doing with TikTok. But when it comes to the kinds of content that is being made in Hollywood, there are some concerns there as well with the self-censorship. And these studios absolutely have self-censored. I mean, you in your book wrote about a hilarious anecdote with Red Dawn, where they literally changed the villains, changed the characters because they were terrified of China. And that happens all the time. They self-select. We haven't had a, we haven't had a Chinese villain in a major Hollywood movie in what, 15 years? I mean, I read Dawn was the last movie to go into production with a Chinese villain. And, and that, that was the early 2010. So yeah, you're right. I think, I think, I mean, it doesn't take much for studio executives to absorb what's allowed and what's not allowed and to just not put it in any script to begin with, right? Like the, the kind of censorship that I think a lot of people picture, which is China saying, okay, take this scene out and that line of dialogue out is actually, I think, probably less common than just writers, producers, and studio executives avoiding certain topics or themes altogether. And what's interesting about the, the heat in Washington now is that it's becoming really a, a bipartisan issue. I think when I was working on my book, which was mostly during the Trump administration, this was largely a Republican-led effort. I remember right, working on my book and thinking that, you know, this was probably going to be something that a lot of Republicans might grab onto because it happens to go after China and Hollywood, right? It's like two, two for the price of one. But I think now we're seeing there's even more, it seems, of a balance in terms of Democrats and Republicans saying that this is a concern, especially on the on the censorship front. But the question I have is, I don't know what quite what quite legislatures could do because I don't think they want a world where they start looking more Chinese in their approach, right? We don't want a world where politicians are telling studio executives what movies to make, what movies not to make. That no, kind of and, there, and there's a there's a real First Amendment problem. I mean, listen, we just saw Disney sued Florida over a claim of retaliation for exercising its First Amendment rights in the Don't Say Gay battle in Florida. I mean, imagine if Congress started saying we don't want any censorship of your movies for China 
the corporations could just say, listen, we can make whatever movies we want. This is protected speech. We, if we want to take out the Chinese villain because we care more about our business than about who is battling Iron Man in you know, Avengers 12, then that's their right. They can make it perhaps a little more difficult. They can maybe not go to bat for the studios and try to negotiate a quota like the Obama administration did 10 years ago. But I don't think there's anything the government can do to prevent these studios from self-censoring. Unless it just becomes more and more a fight in, in the court of public opinion. And I think the studios have calculated rightfully that that a lot of times these dust-ups, you know, whether it's, you know, the Chinese version of Fantastic Beasts puts Dumbledore back in the closet. And there's a bit of a dust up for a day or so. And there are a couple bad headlines that embarrass Warner Brothers, but then it's out of sight, out of mind. And I think studios have seen that happen time and time again. And they know that whenever these censorship decisions do leak, it usually doesn't stick for very long. And as you said, it's worth it if you can maintain that access. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What do you think the state of play is right now vis-a-vis the government and TikTok? That's definitely where we're going to see action, I think. I'm sad for Craig. Craig's on, Craig's on TikTok all day. And if the state of California bans TikTok, I don't know what it'll do. I'm moving. <laughs> you're going to self-select. You're going to move to like Idaho and become a libertarian where the, the government won't touch my TikTok. We're going to see, we're going to just see like if like efficiency is just going to boom, like we're going to, I know, become the most innovative, most inventive culture on the planet. Totally. Schools are going to report record grades. Colleges are going to have too many people that want to go there. It's going to be a a boom, but no, but seriously, this is a real issue. And, And I think one by one, a lot of these Republican controlled legislatures will start banning TikTok, even, you know, maybe it's on public property or, you know, with public government employees or in schools. But the administration here in Washington is going to have to deal with this. And it seems to be pretty bipartisan. People don't like TikTok. No, you're right. I mean, I think people like TikTok. I mean, I think there's just there's just no, a I mean, lot of politicians I mean, it's an easy who, yeah, political issue. Very skeptical of it, you know, and it's some I mean, it's really it's 
obviously, if you think about it, I mean, TikTok has got to be one of the biggest soft power wins of, of recent history, right? I mean, this is exactly what I think the Chinese government was hoping their country could produce when they saw how Japan and Korea had been able to export its culture and its companies abroad. Over the past several decades, there have been all these Chinese efforts to do the same. And TikTok has been, by that metric, an incredible success. I mean, it's all over the world. It's it's completely hooked people like Craig and others. Do you believe that they put their thumb on the scale and they promote tropes and clips that are subtly anti-American, that break down our belief in our systems and make us more exposed to believing that authoritarian regimes aren't so bad and things like that. Do you mean to like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. More, more prone to like insurgency or division. Totally. I've heard commentators say like, it's already happening. They're already promoting videos that weaken the so-called American resolve and that over time it will become more apparent that they are essentially brainwashing us through TikTok. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. I, 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 and I haven't spent enough time on it to know for sure. I will say one thing that I find very interesting is the, the coverage you'll see about how different TikTok can be as an experience within China, right? There have been pieces about how it, within China, it can almost seem like a bit of an education tool, right? And you see this also with like, with like the um, domestic video game bans and things like there is definitely a, a sense that within China, there has to be a real monitoring of how what kids are ingesting that TikTok, young TikTok users in the U.S. are not receiving. I mean, the movies actually serve as a really helpful precedent for this, right? Because there's an analogy to be drawn to what would happen when a Hollywood studio would want to film a movie in China, right? And let's say like, like Mission Impossible or the 355 that Universal did. Like they, these were movies that put had like whole sections that were based in Shanghai or Beijing. And every, every frame of that footage was scrutinized to make sure that China looked as perfect as possible. Well, they had the screw up with Mulan. Remember right. where they, Disney thanked the region that has been imprisoning the Igers there? That was a whole dust up. That was, it was sort of forgotten because it was right pre-COVID and then right. everything went to hell. But that was a big deal. No, absolutely. And also, if you if you watch any of these movies over the past 10 years or so that have filmed in China, like if, if you look like if there's a big shootout, like there was this movie, The 355, you'd be forgiven for forgetting it. But oh, I don't because I hosted a party for them at the Cannes Film Festival when they were selling the movie. Yeah, there's a lovely photo of me and Jessica Chastain somewhere on the Internet. Oh, I have to I have to look that up. It was supposed to be a big, uh, a big deal, that, that movie. But the scenes that take place in China are kind of unintentionally hilarious because there'd be these big gunfights, these big shootouts. And at the end of the gunfight, the cops would show up to kind of make sure everyone was okay and restore order, right? Well, and wait a second. Wasn't Fan Bingbing in that movie? Fan Bingbing was in it, but she had been in prison. She was, she was kind of under house arrest. So, so they had to, they actually had to end up uh, digitally inserting her into the film. So if, if you watch the 355, which again, this, do, please do not take this as an endorsement, just an observation, you can see that Fan Bingbing has been digitally inserted. She's not making eye contact with anyone. There are several shots where she's the only person in the frame. 
Apparently that happened on Ghosted, the Ana de Armas, Chris Evans movie too. So it, it happens all the time. <laughs> wait, wait, I'm so kidding. Did, that is oh, an internet. Okay, that you. is a conspiracy theory. That is not true. Oh, I didn't know that. But but that's funny because the point being, like, there's always been this this dichotomy between how China is allowed to be portrayed on screen and how the U.S. is allowed to be portrayed on screen. And any scene, any footage that's taking place in China has to only present a pristine, perfect kind of safe image to the world. Whereas the U.S., in part because of our system, you know, is allowed to show the messy underbelly of, of life in our in our country, right? So there's these, there's these two sort of versions of the world being distributed, whether by TikTok or the movies. Yeah, it's just hilarious that this movie was made in part to appeal to the Chinese audience. I'm talking 355 and cast with a prominent Chinese actress for that purpose. And then she gets imprisoned by the government and they have to work around that fact while kowtowing to the Chinese government. And then the movie flops because nobody in China wants to see it. No, I mean, it's like all of these efforts to reverse engineer appeal in China have fallen flat. I mean, I should say almost all of them. And like, I think it's also, it kind of just shows how little I think some studio executives have thought of the Chinese audience. Like, oh, if we plug in a Chinese actor, then they're going to start showing, they're going to show up. And the Chinese audiences, like they know that they're being pandered to. And, and they call it getting soy sauce whenever you try to, when you try to do that. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, getting soy That's sauce. That's hilarious. Yeah. And, 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 and like if there was a Chinese actress who was given a very small role that was just basically being used to manipulate audiences to, into thinking she had a bigger one, they would call her a flower vase. That's ridiculous. So I want to talk a little bit before I let you go about Disney because Bob Iger, the CEO, writes a lot in his book about the effort to bring Disneyland Shanghai to completion. And he calls it one of the big crowning achievements of his first tenure at Disney. Iger wanted to be ambassador to China. It's pretty open secret that he wanted that. I don't think he was ever going to get that, but he did want it. And now I feel like the mood on China has totally changed. What's going on at the Disney park in China? Are people going? Is it a success? I don't see any numbers and it was closed for a long, long time. People are going. It's never been as popular as I think many would have expected, just given the size and the and the market. It's not seeing higher attendance than its domestic parks. Um, I think in many ways, the park has come to symbolize, as you said, like the shifting attitude toward China. At one point, it was this kind of crowning achievement of Iger's tenure. And also credit where it's due, getting a theme park built you know, outside Shanghai is no easy feat. I mean, the, the bureaucracy alone that would have to go into that. But it's also been a source of like some monumental headaches, right? I mean, when um, I think it was in late 2020 or so, there was coverage out of the park where there had been a positive COVID case registered at the park. And so the authorities came in and they tested everyone before they left the park for the day. They shut the park down. And oh, then, right. There were like headlines about people being imprisoned at Disney yeah, like Park. Waiting, waiting in line for hours and not getting not getting home until the early morning hours because they had had to stay in line and get swabbed. And I mean, my favorite detail from that story is that I guess someone had the bright idea that they should still entertain these people while they're waiting in line to be tested for COVID. So they started to put off fireworks. Can you imagine standing in line 
waiting to be tested for COVID and there are just there's like a fireworks extravaganza going on above you? I don't know. Pass the time, I guess. Yeah, it's maybe, a good maybe point. put a parade on or something. Just surreal. But I think you're absolutely right. Like the, at one point, I think we would have said, you know, Disney is without a doubt the most successful of the studios in China. It, ha- it sells the most tickets. It's got the park. It's really just reared an entire generation on its mythology. Right. Which hilariously is exactly what the U.S. government says China is doing with TikTok. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can see the argument. Obviously, it's different. And Disney is not promoting any kind of, you know, government propaganda subtly or implicitly. But you could see them saying, oh, these are Western values that are being imported into our country via the Walt Disney Company. And, you know, look at what they're doing with Moana. You know, she's an empowered woman. Look at, you know, you could see these things coming into their country and then being pissed and then being like, wait, you're going to complain about some promoted videos on TikTok? Oh, this is, I mean, you're absolutely right. This is a playbook that, that the U.S. perfected when it comes to how to, how to export its culture and its, and its values. I mean, small thing on that is like my favorite thing, one of my favorite things about reporting the book was learning more about Disney English, which were the string of English language schools that Disney opened in China. And you would, parents would send their kids to these English schools to learn their ABCs and their one, two, threes, but they were taught using Disney characters. They would say, like, Luke Skywalker wants an apple. Like, that's how they would learn. They would, it Sounds was pretty to, cool to me. I would have loved that when I was, you know, six years old. Well, and then, I mean, if, if, it, if it works, Matt, then you start begging your parents to go see Disney movies and going to, see the, going to the park. And, and you can see how this starts to, starts to work. I remember Just I like talk- a real American child. Exactly. Exactly. I remember I talked to one, one teacher who was there. And, and every kid in the classroom would give themselves an English name and all the girls wanted to be Elsa. I mean, it was like soft power at its, at its finest. They've closed those schools since then, in part because they, were, they could be such a headache to manage, you know, and trying to get people over there and trying to get visas and things like that. So I think Disney now, I mean, I, I think they still obviously see it as a huge market, but it really has become as, as much a source of, I think, liability politically or otherwise as it was once just a sign of just how they were succeeding there beyond, you know, anyone else. Right. Now they're brainwashing Americans. Uh, It's a little weird. Craig's been wearing these Chinese military outfits into the ringer offices. Nobody really knows why, but uh, maybe, maybe the TikTok problem is real. All right, Eric, thank you very much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Hey, and thanks. This was fun. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, you excited? The Cannes Film Festival is underway. You know, there's a lot of fun movie log lines coming out of Cannes that um, ha- I'm excited to discuss with you. Some fantastic stuff. I mean, just for those who don't know, the Cannes Film Festival gets a lot of attention for the glamorous premieres. The Leo Scorsese movie is premiering this week and a bunch of others, Indiana Jones and a bunch of other high-profile premieres. But the underbelly of the Cannes Film Festival, the reason it actually exists is because of this market that goes on where you bring your unproduced film to the market and you pre-sell all the territories overseas. You get a bunch of money that allows you to then go and make the movie. And what that leads to are these titles that are often driven by these 80s, 90s movie stars that are still big overseas and can generate the kind of money that you need to make the movie. So that leads to the ridiculous can 
log lines that everyone loves. And I was looking at this one. My, my prediction is that the can market this year is actually going to be down significantly from what we've seen in the past. Um, there's more people there because the pandemic is over, but the movies are not great on the whole. And I think because all these streaming services are pulling back and these theatrical distributors are kind of cautious still about the adult oriented movies in theaters that we're going to see a significant downturn in the market, but that's the business angle. The fun stuff is the log lines. So let's get right into it. Uh, that's a moray. This is a rom-com starring John Travolta and Catherine Heigl. Actually, I don't even need to say the log line. That's all you need to know. I, I don't get any of it. Maybe I, I don't understand how any of this stuff works, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm telling you that John Travolta is an international star. Catherine Heigl is something. <laughs> and okay. that's how it gets sold is, you know, that, that you buy for Bulgaria and, and you buy for France because people know who John Travolta is. But OK, so essentially s selling a film internationally is just like turning back the clock 30 years and international buyers are just living in the 90s. Yeah, because that's what the audience is when they're flipping around late night TV and they're wanting to watch a movie. That's what they see. They, you know, or they're thinking what to go see in theaters. Like that's, it's just name brand recognition. These stars of the 80s and 90s are legitimate stars. And that's who it is. Look at this, Lords of War. This is a an Andrew Nichol movie starring, shocker, Nicolas Cage. It's a sequel to the 2005 hit Lord of War. Uh, was that a hit really? Um, with the bankable, oh my God, I'm reading this ridiculous logline. With the bankable Cage reprising his role as a conflicted international arms dealer. My point is, there is a Nick Cage movie at every can market. It sort of was a joke when I was covering it. I like the one with Rebel Wilson. What was that one? Uh, the Rebel Wilson one. Bride Hard? It's called Bride Hard. And this is a... Oh my God, there's a cliffhanger sequel with Stallone. All right, we're not even going to get into that. Uh, Bride Hard is directed by Simon West uh, of Con Air fame. That was a movie in the 90s mm -hmm. directed by Bruckheimer. Seen it? Or no, uh, produced by Bruckheimer. You've seen it. Okay. Uh, starring Rebel Wilson. It's an action comedy in the vein of miscongeniality that sees the Con Air director teaming with the Pitch Perfect star, Rebel Wilson, who will play a badass secret agent tasked with her toughest mission yet, being the maid of honor for her childhood best friend. You know, I, I don't know. Comedies are in such a bleak place. I I would have low expectations for any logline. I don't know what logline would actually get me excited for a comedy nowadays. So what about Elizabeth Banks and John C. Riley in what's called an extremely timely near future thriller that taps into the current anxiety over AI? It's called Dream Quill. And they play a husband and wife who find their lives disrupted when Gary chooses a robotic version of Carol over the original. Yeah. I'm out on all things AI. I find AI very uninteresting. I don't, I don't need I know, AI it's gonna be like. I just feel like it's going to be like that uh, Sandra Bullock movie, The Net, that came out in the 90s, which like the internet was like the boogeyman. It was amazing. <laughs> um, there's, there's, of course, a Mel Gibson movie. You got to have a Mel Gibson movie. He's directing this time, starring Mark Wahlberg, called Flight Risk. The film is based on a 2020 blacklist script that will see Wahlberg play a pilot transporting a dangerous criminal for trial. So are all of these movies going to have like theatrical releases in America? Probably not. Some, probably not. Uh, but, you know, the way they do it is they usually will sell overseas markets one by one, and then they will do a, a domestic distribution deal, whether that's with a streamer, 
Um, usually not because the streamers tend to want global or it's one of these small independent distributors like a Bleecker Street or a Neon or one of those that will take a flyer on something. And, you know, something starring Mark Wahlberg, you can probably make your money back. Who knows how much flight risk is is costing, although the sales is Lionsgate, so they may have a des- domestic distribution deal for that one. If Bride Hard doesn't happen, I, I riot. I know. You really, I'm, in 2026, you and I are both going to go see Bride Hard together. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Eric Schwartzel. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. 